Well, we are going to get started. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 today. Ephesians chapter 4. This is a long chapter, I think. Uh, let me check chapter 5. I don't know. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, just, just by counting verses, are the two longest chapters in the book. Uh, the other ones have been running around 20, 21, 22 verses, and 4 and 5 are both in the low 30s. And so there's a lot to cover today. Uh, we're going to jump right in, but before we look at the text, just a reminder of what we saw last week. Last week we saw in chapter 3 both the mystery of the gospel and the ministry of Paul. Uh, so Paul was talking again about Jews and Gentiles united together in Christ. He was talking about the way that they are uh, they're joined together as what he called fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the new element that nobody had heard before. Uh, it had been foretold by the prophets. They had been looking for it and trying to figure out uh, when these things would come about, but now there's something completely new. Gentiles can come to salvation without also first becoming Jews themselves. So the gospel changes everything. And then uh, Paul was exhibiting the boldness and access with confidence that he said we have in chapter 3 and ended that chapter with this wonderful prayer for the inward filling uh, of God's people with the Holy Spirit in power. That's been one of the major themes. We've seen that, and we're not really going to leave that as we go through the rest of, uh, of the book, but we've seen this idea of the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, now at work in his people, and giving them new life, new obedience, new faith after him. And that's uh, what we saw there uh, that Paul was praying for. He closed that section with this benediction, this wonderful prayer, uh, of praise uh, that God is able to do far more than we could ever ask for. This week, as we turn into chapter 4, we are going to see the transition from what is typically thought of as the doctrinal portion of Paul's letter to the practical portion of Paul's letter. Uh, and Paul's going to begin to give the church uh, some of the guidelines that ought to shape how we walk with the Lord in daily holiness. So with that in mind, grab your Bibles, open to chapter 4 of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read the text. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the unity uh, that you give us together in Christ. We thank you that indeed we are fellow heirs and partakers and members of the same body together you have joined us in one in this room, and you have joined us in a mystical union with Christ and with your body around the world. We pray not only for ourselves, but we pray for other believers meeting this morning in New England uh, and in other places around the world, uh, all those who are named by the name of Christ, that you would bless their worship, that you would bless their study, that you would uh, draw them into an understanding of the things that you are doing for your people and in your people, as we see this call to come out from the world and live and walk differently today, we pray that you are the one, uh, Lord, that would make it true. Uh, we confess that we're unable to put to work any of these imperatives that we will find, any of these callings to walk like Christ or to live like him or to grow up in the body. And so we confess that we are wholly dependent upon the movement of your spirit and the leading of your word and the grace of your gospel. So we pray that you would give those things. As we read, meet us and teach us, fill us with your spirit, help us to understand the goodness that is ours in Christ Jesus, and help us to walk in obedience and holiness in accordance with the truth that you've revealed in your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter four. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. As far the reading of God's holy word. Uh, Now, as I've mentioned already, this is the shift that we see in Paul's letter from what is typically called the doctrinal to the practical. And if you ever come to me for pastoral counsel, for whatever it might be that you're dealing with, I can almost guarantee you that we will spend a lot of time in Ephesians chapter 4, because that is one of the places where we see Paul start to put feet on what it looks like to live and to walk. That's one of the key themes that he has, this this language uh, that is repeated here, walking worthily of the calling and walking no longer the way the Gentiles do. And he he puts these things together and begins to show us what it looks like uh, to live as believers. This divide, though, between doctrinal and practical isn't hard and fast. Uh, So we saw earlier in the book that there were practical implications. In fact, the whole idea of walking uh, was preempted in chapter 2, right? He talked about the way that we walked uh, according to the prince of the power of the air, and, and we were dead in our trespasses in which we once walked. And now, having been raised with Christ, we should walk in good works, which the Lord has prepared beforehand for us. And so he's been moving us toward this whole idea of what does our walk look like? What should our Christian lives look like? There has been practical uh, implication already in the letter, and there will be doctrinal teaching as we go on. You notice right there in verses 4 to 6, right in the middle of him talking about unity, he, he doesn't just say, now, now be unified. He says, now here's why you are unified. And he gives us this doctrinal backbone. So there's, there's some interplay between these two things. Uh, it's not hard and fast, but we will see this, this decided shift toward imperative as we read the second half of Paul's letter. Now again, in, uh, as in previous weeks, there are two main sections of this text. That's really nice, an easy way to break it down. And each of those two sections, even if you're just following the, the paragraph divisions in the ESV, 
uh, break down into two sections each as well. So if we were going to, going to look at these verses in those four sections, the four key words, the four topics for those paragraphs would be unity, maturity, teaching, and truth. Unity, maturity, teaching, and truth. Verses 1 to 16, the first major section, uh, it presses the church to be united in Christ and to grow up into maturity in Christ's love. Not surprisingly, some of the same themes we've seen already, this happens as the church is united in Christ and united to Christ. He is the, the vessel, the vehicle through which every good thing comes to us, including our unity with one another. Uh, and as we realize that, as we walk in the light of, of who we are in Christ, we grow up into the fullness of him who fills all in all. We've seen that language already, this idea of fullness, this idea of, of maturity, the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ. Uh, and so the unified church becomes the mature church as we walk together in the Lord. And then in verses 17 to 32, the second half uh, calls the church to come out from the world and to live differently from the unbelievers who are all around us. Uh, this involves what he calls learning Christ, being taught by Christ, speaking the truth to one another in Christ. It involves a new understanding of ourselves and who we are in him. It involves a new understanding of the world around us. The last piece of introductory material that I'm going to offer, and then we're, we're going to get headed uh, in the direction of the text, is that the order of Paul's argument here and this switch from chapters 1 to 3 to chapters 4 and 6 is vitally important. I know that you know this. I'm reminding you of what you're already aware of, uh, that when we move into chapters 4 to 6, when Paul starts to give us some ethical commandments, this is not and cannot be a sort of manual for how to become a Christian. Uh, this is not a checklist of if you do these things, God will love you. You will receive God's favor. I'm sorry, you must be this holy to ride on this ride. Right? That's not what we're getting at. This is what one of the commentators I read uh, this week says. It ought to be a sacrifice of gratitude. These are the things that will show up in our lives when we're walking with Christ. And so in a sense, there can be a, a sort of uh, a diagnostic that happens here, a bit of evaluation as we walk in Christ, as we, we see, well, well, what does it look like? What should it look like for believers to walk in the Lord? And it actually, as we, we talk about the way that we interact with one another in the text, uh, ought to be something that we can press on one another. Right? We, we can encourage one another in these things. We can speak the truth to one another in love. We make the body grow together in love when each part is working properly. We can use these things in this text to help others to grow in faith and godliness and holy obedience to the Lord. But uh, it cannot be something uh, that we see as a way to achieve God's favor. Uh, that would be to misread the text. And, and so that's the last time I'm going to mention this as we go through uh, chapters 4 through 6. I, I hope it will be the last time that I mention that. I can't guarantee it. Uh, but getting then directly into the text, let's start with this idea of walking. Paul has said an awful lot, not just about the idea of walking, uh, but about all these doctrinal truths that we've seen, who Christ is for us, who we ought to be in him. And as he turns to this, this uh, commandment now, he says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all that you know already of the first three chapters of Ephesians, what in the, the following discussion uh, is predictable? What is unpredictable? What is surprising in what Paul leads us to? Or, or is he just fleshing out everything that we've already seen? What do you think? Walking worthy of the calling, what, is, uh, what do you see here that you expected? What do you see here that you didn't expect? Jay. Jay. Oh, I missed it. There was a very, very brief Presbyterian meeting. So tell me about uh, walking in the men's meeting yesterday. Okay, good. 
And so that dovetails with what we've seen already and, and goes all the way back to that discussion in chapter 2. Right? We were by nature children of wrath, and that shows up in our daily lives because we're dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And so our walk is what comes out of our lives. Uh, and I'm sorry, the second part you said there about uh, being brothers together, and, and it has something to do with the body and not just with the individual. So it's expressed outwardly. It's expressed corporately, we could say. Yeah, good, good. Landon, did you want to give something other than what Jay was going to say? Okay. Good. So this idea of, I like you're bringing up this cooperation that we have to do in our walking with the Lord. Uh, a couple weeks ago, and Sarah has been waiting for it to become a, uh, a sermon illustration. We'll use it in Sunday school. We sat down with the kids and we were watching the movie Where the Red Fern Grows. Uh, I don't know, 70s or 80s version uh, of that. And my kids were really upset because the whole time I was narrating in my Arlo Guthrie voice. Uh, and, and just driving uh, my kids crazy, but uh, no, let's not. <laughs> I'll give you a private rendition later, Rob. Uh, but one of the things that shows up, there, there are some spiritual undertones. Now, I don't know if in the book, I haven't read the book, I'm a heathen, uh, but in the movie version, uh, there, there is this, uh, this spiritual teaching where the, the little boy's grandfather teaches him, you know, sometimes... Uh, God wants us to meet him halfway. And so there's a scene where the coons are in the tree, this big old sycamore tree, and the boy's trying to chop it down, and he can't, and he's just tired, and, and he prays to God, come on, God, I did my part. Why don't you do yours? Let's, why don't you meet me halfway? And then this big wind comes and blows over the sycamore tree, and he gets his coons. Wow! Is that the kind of cooperation we're talking about? No. Um, when we talk about salvation, let's, let's not forget, we need to remember it in terms of justification and sanctification. Justification is what we call monergistic. It is the work of God alone, mono. And sanctification is synergistic. It is the work of God and the work of man, but it's not a 50-50. It's not like I go this far and then God takes care of the rest, or God does just enough to give me an oomph and then I take off from there. It's God working out his salvation in us. We could turn to Philippians uh, chapter 2 where, uh, where we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Where does our desire, our will, where does our work, our energy actually come from? It comes from God working in us. But we are to walk it out. We are to work it out. And so this idea of, of cooperation, uh, and this is exactly what Paul is talking about. When he gets to walking, this is what we ought to be doing. We ought to be putting it into practice. Thank you. Chris.
Yeah, I love that idea of Christ yoking us to himself uh, and, and not dragging us, but calling us to walk and, in a sense, sharing his strength with us so that our burden is light. And connect this to what we saw, the doctrinal teaching in the previous chapter. Uh, Paul is praying that they would be strengthened in their inner person uh, through the working of God's spirit. Why do we need to be strengthened? Well, he talks about being filled with the fullness. That's maturity language so that we would walk with him and grow up into him. Good. Good. Scott, what do you see that's surprising? What do you see that's expected? Well, I or think, I Now, I want to stretch you a little bit. We, we tend, as, uh, as Americans, uh, as individualistic people, uh, to think of all things in individual terms, including salvation, including the working out of our salvation. What am I doing? Uh, what is Christ doing in me? Has he saved me to himself? But I want you to notice the corporate language that shows up here. Right? Even this walking out... Uh, and just notice the, the virtues that he adds. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. These are virtues that cannot happen in a monastery or in some you know, desert cell somewhere in a cave living by yourself. These are corporate virtues that Christ is working into his people, and he's showing us that when we walk worthy of the calling to which Christ has called us, it will be a walking with one another, right? And so the expression of our faith ought to be something that we share with one another, something that we grow together uh, in with one another. Uh, and in fact, he goes on to talk about this unity in the bond of peace uh, that we have there. Anything else that you see that's surprising, that, uh, that you expected in this language of walking and the way that Paul is leading us through this? Dave? Verse 15? Oh, 15 sentences. Okay.
Okay. Okay. Yeah, hopefully uh, those fireworks came from you speaking the truth in love in a corporate setting. As uh, <laughs> oh yeah, uh, yeah, but but it but it is interesting, right? And and notice the way that um, maybe getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but notice the recurrence of of the language that we use with one another. This is another major theme in what it means to walk worthy of this calling. It shows up several times in this chapter. Uh, Paul says that we ought to. Uh, speak the truth in love to one another. He says later, toward the end of, uh, of the chapter, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for, for we are members of one another. This idea of a lot of our walking and our expressing together as Christ's body what holiness looks like has to do not just with the way that we treat one another, but with the things that we say to one another. Uh, with the way that we're building one another up in the Lord. Okay. Um, as we move on, as we as we think about um, uh, more of more of this and uh, this idea of the unity that we have, the bond of peace, uh, he says again this doctrinal statement that there is one body. You are called in the one hope that belongs to your call: one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. Uh, and there's this unity aspect that we've seen and we expect, right? Uh, we, this is one of the things that I was, I was reading. Okay, that's, that's expected. Uh, he's just talked about Jews and Gentiles together. He's just talked about uh, the fact that we are united in Christ. We have peace together. We've been uh, made into one body in place of the two. Enmity is broken. We're united together. Great, one body. Uh, but, take a look at verse 7. There's this adversative uh, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. There is a diversity in the body as well. Not everybody has the same gift. Not everybody receives the same gift. Not everybody grows in holiness at the same time or in the same trajectory or to the same degree. Now he's talking about these gifts. What is the, what is the goal uh, of the gifts that Christ gives to his church? That is uh, a sort of easy Question, but why does Christ give these gifts to his church? What are the gifts that he's talking about, by the way? Maybe the, the uh, prerequisite question before we ask why he's giving them. What are the gifts? Is this a First uh, Corinthians chapter 12 sort of spiritual gifts? Is it a Romans 12 kind of? Uh, help and administration and teaching and, uh, and leadership and all those sorts of things. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, it's interesting to note uh, that when we talk about spiritual gifts in the New Testament, whether it's Romans or whether it's 1 Corinthians, the word is charismata, uh, that is grace gifts. Uh, so the Greek word for grace is charis, charis. Uh, and when he talks about spiritual gifts, he says charismata, which is where you get the charismatic church, those that believe in continuing uh, sign gifts in the church. And so the same uh, idea is here. But grace was given, charis was given, um, and, uh, and it's a similar language that shows up, uh, but, it, but it shows up a little bit differently. I saw Tim mouthing an answer a while ago, what are the gifts that Christ gives to the church? Yep, yep. So it's the grace of this unity that he's been talking about, okay? Uh, it's, uh, it's these virtues that he, he works into us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the split P's. Are you in the OPC or the PCA or the ARP, the RPC and A, the UPC USA? Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we might begin to splinter. You never know. Ronnie. 
Good. <laughs> yeah, this is one of my favorite verses. Pastors are God's gift to the church. Um, you notice, notice the way that Paul interrupts himself again. Uh, he says in verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Uh, reminds him, oh yeah, Christ gives gift to men. These are a part of his triumph parade. He's subduing the nations to himself. He's triumphing over these spiritual authorities and powers. Uh, he is leading in the train of his garment. The King James says he takes captivity captive. He leads all these captive forces that he's overcome and, and imagine a Roman emperor coming home after a great war, and what do they do? They, they dole out gifts to the people uh, for their benefit, for their welfare. They share in the spoils. Christ is sharing in the spoils, and he says he gives gift to men. And then he interrupts himself with this decision or this discussion of he who ascended and he who descended and filling all those things. But then he comes back to the language, verse 11, of giving. What are the gifts that he gives? Well, he gives the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so there is this diversity in the church. Not everyone is an apostle or a prophet. In fact, not anyone anymore is an apostle or a prophet. And not everyone in the church is a pastor, a teacher, or an evangelist. But the Lord has a goal in mind when he gives these gifts to the church, and it's not so that pastors can stand in front of a Sunday school and say, I am God's gift to the church, and you better be awfully thankful for me. Yeah, Scott. Yeah. Right. So what is it? What is it? If it's not the doing of the work of the church, what is Christ's goal in giving these gifts to his people? So it's an enabling and an equipping ministry for the church to help the church, as he says later, so that it will build itself up in love. Good. Uh, Chris, what's the goal? Christ-like, yeah. This idea that the whole church, um, uh, and uh, Scott uh, crystallizes it, that we would be Christ-like, that we would grow up into the fullness of the stature, the measure, the full manhood of Christ. Um, good, good. Now, there's a, there's a distinction as we begin to talk about this equipping ministry versus the doing ministry that God has given. And there is a distinction depending on how old your Bible translation is. Uh, most of the older translations, you never thought a comma could be that important. Most of the older Bible translations will leave out a comma. Most of the newer Bible translations will add a comma. 
And so the older ones will say something like, and I bet somebody near the back of the room can probably just read it for us, but the older translations will say something like, uh, he gave uh, them, uh, the evangelist shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints, uh, sorry, the, the older ones add a comma, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, right? So, so there's a series of things that the pastors, teachers, evangelists are to do. They are to equip the saints. They are to do the work of the ministry. They are to build up the body of Christ. The newer translations, I had it backwards, remove that comma. So it is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The difference is who's doing the work of the ministry. Is the pastor doing the work of the ministry in the church, or is the pastor equipping the saints so the saints can do the work of the ministry in the church? Uh, on the whole, I think the, the argument that Paul is giving, what's that? The answer is yes. <laughs> the pastor, pastor does a lot of the work of the ministry. But the people ought to be doing the work of the ministry of the church as well. Uh, speaking of which, here's another plug for our sign-up sheet. If you haven't put your name, no. Uh, if you haven't put your name on the sheet yet, do that and pick a text. But, uh, but the argument on the whole, notice the language, and we've already touched on some of it. Uh, verse, uh, verse 16 comes from Christ, and there's almost a parallel that's being drawn here. I and, and your elders and your pastors and teachers, the evangelists in the church, wouldn't claim to be in Christ's place, right? We're not the vicar of Christ. But there is an analogy that Paul is, uh, is giving us in the church. Pastors, uh, evangelists, and teachers equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Verse 16, uh, from whom the whole body, that is from Christ the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. Who makes the body grow? Well, the body makes the body grow. But it comes from Christ. So Christ is joining his body together. Christ is, in a sense, equipping his body with his spirit, teaching his body with his truth. And when all these things coalesce, the body grows as a body ought to. Right? We have kids, and they eat a lot and our tallest one eats more than any of them, and his body is growing, and we don't have to do anything other than put the food in front of him to enable him to grow. It's just going to happen, right? And when, when Christ puts uh, the food of his word and the, the nourishment of his spirit together with his body, it happens. The body makes itself grow in love, but it comes from Christ. I, I think on the whole, there's a good parallel that can be made between the pastors, evangelists, teachers, uh, and Christ himself and what he does for the church, that really it is equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. But if you wanted to quibble over that, I would be okay with it as well. Now, a, a question that shows up in this section and shows up again, how in the world does speaking the truth to one another help this uh, idea of growing uh, in the Lord, of maturing in Christ? What does it matter uh, that we speak the truth to one another. D does, it, does it show up just in practical ways? Does it, uh, what effect does speaking the truth to one another in love have on our growth together in the Lord? Chris? Okay, so Chris says that this helps when we have to say something hard to one another. And I love that you point out this gentleness. It's almost as though verse 32 is in the text, which it is, uh, that we ought to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. That's how we speak the truth in love, with tenderness and kindness and forgiveness for those that we have to speak hard things to. Great. I saw Cynthia and then Dave.
we're sharing a wavelength here, Cynthia. Yeah, I, I love that idea. Um, we tend to think of this verse as, ooh, it's going to be hard. We tend to, to imagine that Paul adds this, speaking the truth with love, because we're tempted to speak the truth with harshness. And that's, that's the case much of the time. And again, if you come and do any counseling with me, you're going to hear about this because this is the way that we, we err in talking to one another. We have a tendency sometimes to downplay the truth of a situation because we really want to be loving and accepting and encouraging, don't we? Or we sometimes have a tendency to want to downplay our love because we've got to tell it like it is. And Paul says, no, you've got to have the truth. You've got to have the love together. That's the way that, that uh, you're to encourage one another, to challenge one another, a sort of iron sharpening iron. We tend to think of this in the way that Chris has just raised the issue. Uh, and it's true. But the way that you're bringing it up, there's a benefit to simply speaking the truth of what we believe to one another. Notice in, uh, is it verse, where is it? Verse 21. <clears throat> Verse 20, uh, so he's talking about futility of their minds, darkening their understanding, alienated, ignorant, hard and of heart, callous, <clears throat> excuse me, greedy. Verse 20, but that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. We've got speaking the truth uh, in love. We've got speaking the truth to one another. And in the middle, we have Jesus, who himself is the truth. There is a positive aspect to what we ought to be doing here. And you can think almost, again, an analogy between Christ and his bride. Christ washes his bride and sanctifies her by the washing of the water and the word. He speaks the word over his bride. That's how he sanctifies her and grows her. We have an opportunity to be a part of that work in one another's lives. How do we grow together into the fullness of the maturity of Christ? We speak the truth to one another. We come to Sunday school. We don't have to be in Sunday school, right? Well, worship, that's required. Sunday school, feel like sleeping in. Why would you miss it? We're here together speaking the truth to one another in love. We're growing up together in Christ who is the head he speaks not just through the pastor, as he will for 40 minutes later in a monologue, but he speaks through a dialogue. And yeah, it's going to be about 40 minutes. Hold on. Uh, there's, a, there's a dialogue that happens when we meet in Sunday school, when we meet in small group Bible studies, when we have men's fellowships, when we have, uh, when we have conversations with one another over cups of coffee, uh, when we're in our families and we sit around our table and we open God's word and the father asks questions from his children and the children respond and you hear something of God's truth from a child and you go, I've never thought about it that way. Speak the truth to one another in love. Why? Because this is how we grow up. If you want to say something about this conversation, I'll call on you. If not, Dave was next in line. <clears throat> good, good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we need times like that when we can listen to one another, when we can speak to one another. If you were to look in the book of church order, all of you officers sitting in the room, you've already read it. Uh, we think of church discipline as what happens when you do the wrong thing in the church. We think of church discipline as courts and trials uh, and charges and excommunication. The first step, according to our book of church order, in church discipline is teaching. That is what happens right now, what happens when we come to hear God's word later. There is a proactive discipline, just like in homes. You don't only react to what your kids do wrong, you teach them what they ought to do right. And that's the same thing that happens. We speak the truth to one another in love. So I love this, the, the hard things uh, and the, the sort of proactive discipline nature of it. Dave, what did you want to add to that? <clears throat> Yeah. 
that is a wonderful segue into the next section in verse 17. Paul says, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Uh, Dave says that we all live in a fog of lies, and Paul says, absolutely. Right? This is the way the Gentiles walk. The nations, the people, uh, the unbelievers in the world walk in this darkened understanding that leads not only to a misunderstanding, uh, but a rejection of the truth. This is very similar to Romans chapter 1. Right? They denied the truth that was able to be understood by them. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. There was an active rejection of what God was revealing. And so as a judgment, God gives them over to their own sensuality. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and there, is, there is this spiral that's happening, right? It, it moves from uh, futility uh, to callousness, a hardness of heart, goes all the way to greedy. You can't get enough of the impurity that fills your life, right? Uh, and that fog of lies, it comes from all of us. And, and there is this, uh, this uh, response that we ought to have toward one another, this protective truth that we speak to one another to combat that fog of lies that we get caught into. Good. Now here's the question for you. Do you expect unbelievers that you know to look like that? To look like uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 uh, to 19. Do you actually expect that the unbelievers who are in your life, the people who live next door, who have a nicer lawn than you have, and seem to do well with their kids on a soccer game on Saturday morning, do you actually expect that? Tim says yes. Okay. Why? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Ronnie. So what we see is exactly what Paul tells us we ought to see. Uh, and uh, Tim says that's what he expects. Ronnie says she's learning to expect that. Molly. I like that. I like that almost a, a humility in being able to read the situation. <clears throat> we believe in total depravity. Uh, we do not believe in, in absolute depravity, right? We are all sinful in all aspects of our being. None of us is as sinful as we could be if the Lord would withdraw his hand and turn us over to these things. And so by his common grace among humanity, there are people who take care of their houses and treat their pets well and raise children who are respectful and, and have all sorts of uh, virtues and good for society. 
but Paul says this is what's actually going on in the heart. And the, the question I asked, do we expect unbelievers to work like this, to, to live like this? The follow-up question is, do we expect to have to deal with the same issue in our own lives? That's the humility that we ought to have, that we don't go out in the world and say, well, all those people are terrible, but we're doing pretty well, aren't we? No, take a look. Uh, verse 22, you, you have heard of him, you're taught of him, as the truth is in Jesus, what? To put off your old self. What about your old self? Well, it belongs to your former manner of life, and it is corrupt through deceitful desires. It's a quicker description, but it's not any better. Right? Paul is not saying, well, those unbelievers, those Gentiles, they're futile and callous, and they love sensuality. Uh, but then he comes back in verse 22, he says, so do you. You do too. Yeah. And, and I mentioned earlier that, that this list in 17 to 19 reminds us of Romans chapter 1. Uh, verse 22 reminds us of Romans chapter 2. What about you, O oh man, who practice the same things? You have no right to judge others. You who condemn them, do you do it yourself? You who teach others not to steal, do you steal? And Paul goes on and he says, we're all under sin. It's all a, a problem that's in our heart. It's not just something we can say, well, those unbelievers out there. Right? And so Paul's now coming back and, and reminding us, chapter 2 of Ephesians, you have been called out from these things. You've been given new life. You've been raised again. And now walk, not the way that the Gentiles do. In fact, not the way that you used to puts us in the same bucket, and he says, you've been called out. Jay. I'm really excited because I've been growing in humility. I'm getting more and more humble. Let me tell you about how humble I am. Right? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> <You're> <laughs> we'll talk about that later, too, in our Arlo Guthrie impersonation. Uh, yeah, so this, oh, we're so self-deceived. This is the problem. We're self-deceived. We breathe this fog of lies. We need to speak the truth to one another in love because that's how we are woken up. Uh, that's one of the, the ways that Christ speaks to us and through us to one another uh, and shows us the way that he's leading us to himself. Uh, this, this idea that the heart of man is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Well, the Lord tests the mind. He knows the heart. He gives to each one as he deserves. And he knows better than we do. But thankfully, he gives us one another. And that's really what Ephesians 4 is talking about. He gives us one another in the church so that we can help one another see what Christ is doing, where he's leading us, so that we can spur one another on. And let me leave you with this question. Why do we get so prickly when, we, uh, when somebody else comes to us and wants to talk about practical holiness? Reading a book by Craig Troxell recently. Excellent book. I'm going to recommend it to everybody forever in the church. Uh, it's called With All Your Heart, Orienting Your Will, uh, Desires, and, uh, and Actions uh, toward Christ, or, or something like that, the, the, uh, the subtitle, but the, the title is called With All Your Heart. And he, Craig Troxell is a, a professor of, uh, of preaching at Westminster Seminary West in Escondido, California, and in a portion in his book, he says he was, he remembers a conversation he had with a seminary student who was flabbergasted by the idea that there are some movies Christians simply shouldn't watch. 
he's talking to this student and saying, you shouldn't be watching that stuff. Who are you? I have, I have liberty in Christ. Don't I? Who are you to tell me I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't be watching these things? You mean we need to be that legalistic? No, we need to be pursuing holiness together. Right? Can we actually talk about that? Can we say to one another, you probably shouldn't be watching that show. You probably shouldn't be reading that book. You probably shouldn't use that kind of language on your social media profile. Can we do that without feeling prickly and feeling like, who is this person who wants to run my life? It is. It is. Yeah, and so what's, what's the answer for that? Uh, it's the minimum effective dose. It's love. That's exactly why Christ says to his disciples in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go to him alone. Don't turn somebody else's sin and failures and holiness into an opportunity for virtue signaling and helping the old lady cross the street and saying, I'm doing really well. I'm doing better than you folks. Right? Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Uh, we are self-deceived, and even self-deceived in the way that we encourage one another, <clears throat> excuse me, in holiness. And so minimum effective dose, take a brother or sister aside. Speak to them privately. Don't speak to anyone else about what you're seeing if you're not willing to speak to them. Right? <clears throat> I was joking when I said it earlier. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Go go ahead, Dave. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, sometimes the Lord surprises you when you think you're going to speak the truth to somebody else and you end up hearing the truth for yourself. And that's the blessing of the church, right? That, that he, he gives us one another that we can be so bold to say hard things to one another, uh, to say, brother, sister, really ought to be pursuing godliness in this way, right? That's why God gives us older saints in the church. Chris mentioned Bill McCaldy a while ago. Uh, love Bill Mercaldi, and, and he will, he's never going to tell you something that is earth-shaking in the sense of like, wow, I've never heard that before. But he's going to come and he's going to take you by the elbow and he's going to quietly encourage you to keep on doing what you know is faithfulness in the Lord. And we need more people like that in the church and more people who are willing to say that to one another in the church, quietly, gently, off to the side somewhere when, when necessary. Uh, but uh, but uh, as we leave this, uh, Paul gives us our unity together, and then he says, live like this and talk like this and speak the truth to one another in love. That's all the time we have today. Uh, we'll come back to chapter 5 next time, where there are no controversies at all in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, and we'll, we'll see that together. Again, please, men, sign up. Pick a text, pick a date. The first two are already gone. They're going fast. Uh, pick the text that you want to lead and teach uh, to God's people in the church, and, uh, and let's do the work of the ministry together. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the truth spoken not only uh, by one or two people and leaders in the church, but by many. Uh, thank you for the gifts that you've given through your body and to your body. We pray that today as we come before your word, you would cause us to grow up into Christ who is our head. Make us mature believers in him so that you would be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.